We're going to be uh, picking up where we left off last week. Um, I had a bunch of different scriptures that I wanted to share with you, but we just didn't have time to get into all of it. And I want to continue with what we were doing. So I... We're in James, but we're also in Hebrews, and we're also going to be in Galatians, and we're going to, I mean, it's a lot of places to turn to. I don't know if you have that many fingers to put your fingers in all these different places, but in Hebrews, it talks about, this is Hebrews 6, uh, it says, it's, it's talking about things that accompany salvation. That was last week's title. And today, we're going to continue with that. And it also says in verse, I believe it's verse 10, that it says, work and labor of love. Talking about our work and labor of love. That's critical that you get the love on there. Why do you do the things you do for God? Are you doing it out of duty, guilt, you know you're supposed to, or are you doing it because you love the Lord? Is it, do you do the things you do because you love God? Last week, I talked about, I, I tried to give an illustration of uh, an apple tree. I was talking about a junk tree over on the farm, and how I can hang apples all over it. And from a distance, it looks like an amazing apple tree. But if you get close to that apple tree, and you get to know that tree, you will very quickly realize that it's not an apple tree at all. But things have been hung on it to make it look that way. We don't want to be... Uh, Christians in name only, we don't want to be just hanging works on us so that we look like Christians from a distance. We want to be a real apple tree that you just need to stand back and watch what happens. The fruit will start to naturally appear. Okay? So that's what I want, to ha want you to have in your mind being connected to the root, being a branch that is grafted into Jesus Christ. Those things that accompany salvation will become natural to you. They won't be a work in the sense that you're trying to do these things. It will just become part of who you are. So, Let's, let's, go, let's go to James, and we, we, this is what we were, I was trying to read all of the end of chapter 2, uh, so I'm going to kind of go back over the end of it and, and follow it through to the end. So I'm in James chapter 2, starting with verse 21, and this seems like a contradiction to being born again, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. This seems like it's a contradiction, but it is not. And it talks about how, uh, leading up to this, that 
you need to have faith that also has action attached to it. And the Bible uses the word works for action. For things you actually do, it calls it works. Now that can be a little uh, unsettling to some people because you know that it's, you can't involve works with your salvation. Now when you see the word justified, I'm going to read starting with 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, like I was trying to communicate last week, if you think the word justified means a born-again experience every time it's used in the Bible, then you're, you are going to be very confused, and you'll be one of those people that say the Word of God contradicts itself. Well, you must understand what words mean, and that there could be a word, one word, that has actually different meanings, or, because if you tell people, I am saved, and I, I am a joint heir with Christ, and I'm going to heaven, all my sins have been uh, just taken away, and a person might say, well, what did you do to pay for those sins? What did you do? And you say, I didn't do anything. I'm counting on what Jesus did for me. And they say, well, that just don't make sense. That doesn't seem fair. I'm like, I know. It's not fair, but I like it. I like it a lot. You know, it wasn't fair for all the sin of the world to be placed on Jesus. But he allowed it to happen so that all his righteousness can be placed on us when we didn't deserve that. That's the gospel story. We can be forgiven. So, someone could say, how do you justify that? How can you justify that? That would be a word that is just, it's a, it's a word that could mean your, the evidence, uh, the witness. How, how can you say that? Uh, so, if, if you say you have faith, a man says he has faith. That's, all right, I'm backing up to 14, because this is where it's at. What doeth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? So, if you just say something, does that mean it's true? All right, I wrote down over here on my notebook, I said, I wrote down, I didn't, I didn't come up with this, but I wrote it down, all actions issue from our beliefs. Our actions are therefore a more accurate statement of our beliefs than our words. Make sense? That's pretty good. Now back down to 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son a on the altar. Now, if you change, if you make justified mean saved or born again, then you're messing up Scripture. But there are places in the Scripture, especially in, in uh, Romans 4, where when it's talking about being justified, it is talking about you being saved. 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, notice, notice that it says, the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was, in, it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Okay, when was righteousness imputed to Abraham? Do you remember that story? Well, that's in Genesis 15. I wrote down Genesis 15, 6, where you can go to and see where God imputed righteousness to Abraham. Imputed, that's an accounting term. That's like you having no money in your account, but yet somebody goes down and puts money in there for you, they have imputed that money into your account. And then you can reckon it to be so. Right? You reckon your, your statement. Well, I didn't put the money in, but somebody did. Or they said they did. Are they trustworthy? All right? There are certain people that can say, hey, I put money in your account, and I'd be like, uh, I don't, I doubt that. But there's other people who would say it, I would believe it with all my heart. And I would reckon it to be so. And I would confidently go out and use that money knowing that it's there. Okay? God imputed righteousness to Abraham. Why? Because he believed God. He just simply believed God. And the righteousness of God was put on Abraham's account like it was really his righteousness. This right here, what we're talking about in verse 21, is what Abraham did, his actions, 40 years after righteousness was imputed to him. So, Genesis 22, doesn't seem like it's that far along in the Bible, but that's 40 years when Abraham was willing to take Isaac up to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him, kill him. So this is saying that because of what he did proved or vindicated his belief. And what was his belief? His belief, his belief was is that God would have to raise him up from the dead. He believed that. And you can go over to uh, Hebrews 11. And you can read where we know that Abraham believed that God would have to raise Isaac and that, yep, come on, Isaac, let's take you up here. We're going to lay the wood out and we are going to kill you and God's going to have to raise you. But on the way up, they uh, found a ram caught in a thicket and the ram took the place. Now, all right, let's go to the next part of this. 23. Uh, no, 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. That story, this has nothing to do with Rahab being saved she risked her life. She actually put her life in jeopardy by what she did. 
Now, this didn't make her righteous with God, but she was actually showing that she believed what she had heard about the God of these messengers, who was God Almighty, the God. And she knew that they were going to come and wipe her city out. She believed that. And the fact that she risked her life to hide these spies and to get them out of there safely showed that she believed what she said. You see the picture here? We see that Abraham believed because of what he did. We see that Rahab believed because of what she did. Now, those things didn't save them. It's something they already had as far as Abraham was concerned, but Rahab, even not having true salvation, believed what God was going to do. So the spies said, when we come back to destroy your city, you will hang, if you will hang the red cord out your window, then we won't destroy your house, and you'll be saved. So her life was saved. And then she ended up becoming part of the nation of Israel and became a very significant part of the nation of Israel. So she eventually was accounted righteous, just like Abraham was sometime in the future. All right, so I'm going to give you some examples. I just mentioned some of them um, last week of how the word justify or justification uh, are used throughout the Word of God. Here, right, here's here's uh, wisdom being justified. Like, what? Wisdom needs to be justified? In Matthew eleven nineteen, it says, Wisdom is justified of her children. That's obvious not being born again or being saved. Uh, Luke seven thirty five says the same thing. In Luke 7.29, and the publicans justified God. God needs to be justified. In Psalm 51, against thee, and, I, and this is breaking down the passage a little bit, uh, have I done this evil that thou mightest be just... This is, this is another example of God needing to be justified. David was saying, God, the punishment that you put on me, you're justified in doing it because I deserve every bit of it. So don't get mad at God for what he's doing to me because I deserve it. He's justifying God, vindicating God for what God is going to do to him. In Romans 3, 4, Let God be true, but every man a liar that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings. Another example of God being justified. If God said it, he's right. If man says it, watch out. Might not be right. Might be right, but might not be right. So does it sound like God needs to be saved? No, nah, he don't need to be saved. The word justify and justified doesn't always mean what you might think it means. Um, man seeking to be justified. All kinds of examples. I shared last week Ezekiel 16, it was verses 51 and 52. 
And it says, And hath justified thy sisters in all thine abominations which thou hast done. So the context of that is Isaiah, I mean Ezekiel, is telling the people of Judah, you have done such terrible things that you're making the people of Samaria look good and the people of Sodom look good. You, you've, by what terrible things you've done, you've justified Sodom. But understand that the people of Sodom had been in hell for a very long time. They were not saved. It's just a way of speaking. And then the lawyer in Luke 10, 29, the lawyer came to Jesus asking, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And, you know, what are the commandments? And the lawyer answered very well. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yep, you got it. Now, remember, Jesus was uh, still under the law. He was under the dispensation of law. And you had to do right things. But then, they, but then it says the lawyer, in trying to justify himself, see, the lawyer himself knew that he was not treating his neighbor the way he was supposed to. So he said, trying to justify himself, he said, who's my neighbor? So it's easy to treat the people you really like and the people you love. It's easy to treat them the way, you're, the way you want to be treated. But that person over there and those people that live over in that neighborhood, I don't, I don't know about that. They're not my neighbor. I'm a little bit too far away from them. But no, you got to be able to treat the, the, your enemies good as well. So he was trying to justify himself. And then, a little bit later, in Luke 16, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. So we're, we're always trying to justify ourselves to please other people and to prove to other people that we're good, but God knows your heart. So hanging apples, on, hanging apples on the tree, you're just trying to look good to people, but if you are truly what you say you are, you will produce the apples naturally. God knoweth your hearts. <clears throat> All right, now, now some examples of how we are supposed to do good works. Not to become saved and not to maintain our salvation, but that's just what comes naturally to those who truly believe. On the front of your bulletin, you can see in Titus 3.8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. All right, here is uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. And I would like to read a lot more, but the verse I want you to look at is at the end of verse 13. And what it's talking about is uh, the word of men compared to the word of God. And then it says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, 
ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is, as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see that word, effectually? Worketh. When you believe the true word of God, things happen to you. You're different. Okay? Let's go over to Titus, which we just read something out of Titus, but something else that's in my notes. All these books are pretty close together, in between James and uh, right that's right before all of where we've been. So let's, uh, let's look at Titus, and really, all of this is about what we actually do when we believe. And this is to Titus, but like I said last week, uh, remember last week uh, I was talking about how people try to discount James because it's addressed to the 12 tribes. And then we went through every single New Testament book, and I showed you where how almost every single New Testament book is addressed to somebody and not us. Or is it really to us? So to discount the book of James because it's to the 12 tribes, we would have to say, well, we can't, Titus isn't to us, it's to Titus. So we can justify getting rid of a whole lot of the New Testament by going to who it's addressed to and say, oh, well, that's not addressed to me. It's not addressed to the church, it's addressed to that, to, to that particular people. So you can uh, manipulate Scripture how you want to try to justify whether you need to follow this or not. Okay, well, here, here's Titus. If you are a true minister, and every one of us that are truly born again, we are a minister in some way, shape, or form. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. I'm, I'm going to read all of two. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity or love, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. This is action right here. This is what you're supposed to be like. Not false accusers, accusers not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husband. Ah, that's, that's a scary one. Uh, should I? Is that really what it says? That the word of God be not blasphemed. Whoa, that's serious. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that can, cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. You're supposed to live a life where that's the case. And if, if you, were, if you uh, listen to the podcast, the Wednesday night, goes right along with this, what we've been studying in Deuteronomy. Exhort servants, this is verse 9 of uh, Titus chapter 2, 
exhort, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, people are going to get mad at you when you preach stuff like this. They're just going to. Okay. Uh, Acts 26. Acts 26. Now, this is the story. Uh, I'm going to start reading at 18. But this is the story of Paul describing what had happened to him at the very beginning of Acts. If you go back toward, not the very beginning, but at the other end of Acts, where he, what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And he's explaining this to Agrippa and Festus. He's explaining what had happened. And then he said, so he, he talked about the bright light, brighter than the sun, knocking him off the horse, and everybody around him that was with him saw all of this. And he, he uh, what Jesus said to him, and, and this is, all right, Jesus was telling him that, look, I am sending you to these people to the, and to the Gentiles. See, Gentiles aren't real people, evidently. I'm going to send you to the people and to the Gentiles. He delivered him from the people and from the Gentiles, but now he's going to send them to the people and the Gentiles. Why? Why was, why was Jesus going to send Paul to these people? starting with 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. See, people don't realize that they're under the power of Satan when they're not with God. They don't understand it. And from the power of Satan unto God, and they, that, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's what Jesus said to Paul. And then he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus, and at Jerusalem, and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent. doesn't say re that they should repent of their sins, even though that's what the goal was, but... It's, it's, he just says they need to repent and turn to God. It doesn't do you any good to return from your ways and turn to something other than God. Now, you, you can go out and tell people to repent and repent repent, but repent to what? You better give them something. You can, 
you can have demons cast out of people, and if that void is not filled, it will be worse later than at the beginning. That demon will go, get some friends, they'll come back and see the house is all swept out and clean, and then you might get seven demons back. You better fill the void with God. So repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Works, again, that just means your actions that, are, that, that go along with true repentance. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the, and to the Gentiles. Gentiles, they must be something. Unto the people and to the Gentiles. I just think that's funny. Aren't Gentiles people do? And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doeth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? He's asking him a question. I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. After all that, you know, the hardness of the heart, that's a tough thing. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I, as I am. And then he says, accept these bonds. See, Paul knew he was in a great place. He was a saved person, but he was locked up for what he was doing. See, he could have been a person that just believed but didn't go do anything, and he wouldn't have got locked up. He wouldn't be in these bonds. He was in chains, but he did it. He did things. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and, and Bernice, and they that sat with them, and when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, so they kind of go off, you know, Paul's over there somewhere, saying, this man doeth uh, nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. So, so God... Paul's got to go there. That's part of God's plan. And if he had not done that, appealed to Caesar, then right here they would have said, you know what, let's let him go. And God's purpose wouldn't be fulfilled. But because God is in control, you know, we, we look around and say, God, why isn't God in control? I thought God was in control. Well, we won't see it till the end. But because of that simple appeal to Caesar... 
even though they, a man would have set, put an end to God's purpose, God's purpose is going to be carried through. And we don't always see it at the time. We usually don't see it at the time. <clears throat> but Paul is doing what God wants him to do. And things are going to end up the way God wants them. It's, it's going to happen. But will you be there? Will you be there? Or will you be lost? <clears throat> so understanding words. You can read the Word of God and you can be confused. We all have been at some point because there are a lot of words that religious people have made to mean something and then we take it wrong when we read it. We need to do a word study and go throughout the Bible to find out what words really mean. Um, Michelle and Alona, you know, work down at Chick-fil-A, they, they're telling jokes all the time, and they're becoming very well known for that. I walked into Dollar General, and the lady who runs the store over there, she said, she knows us pretty good. She goes, does your wife come home and tell all those jokes to you? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and some of them are pretty good. But a little boy told Michelle a joke yesterday. Little boy. And he was, I don't know exactly how he said it, but what he was trying to do was, uh, he was, he was trying to explain how long, the, the trip from first base to second base for a baseball player. And how that the trip from second to third takes a little longer than the trip from first to second. Addison should know this. She's a softball player. And why is it that the trip from second to third takes longer? Well, there's a short stop in between. Now, is that true or not? There is a short stop right over there between second and third base. And if you know softball, if you know baseball, you know that's true. But what it seems like is that, that you have, in your run, if you don't know anything about baseball, that you've got to stop and, you know, eat a, eat a power bar so you have enough energy to go the rest of the way. You know, you know like a car stopping at a gas station, you've got to get some more gas. It's a short stop in between there, so it takes longer. So the more you know about the Bible as a whole, the more you understand those things that could be confusing. So you got to stay in the Word. <clears throat> All right, let's, uh, I think that's good enough. I think you'll, you're understanding that James, the book of James is not trying to mix works with faith to earn salvation. It's not trying to do that. All it's doing is saying to you that if you say you have faith, then your actions will prove it out. That's all it's really saying. Now, something that we do as Christians is when we meet from time to time, some people uh, take communion every time they meet. They might be a little more accurate than what we do. Uh, if you really get into Scripture, what you'll find out is you don't have to come to a church building to have communion. You don't have to do that. And you do not need a so-called 
ordained clergymen to present it to you. That's not scriptural. We could have anybody here who is a true believer that could come up and administer this. Anybody, anybody here who is a true believer is it's acceptable for them to do that. If you look at Scripture you, and you really study it, we probably should be breaking bread at the very first thing we do and then get into the Word. But we save it for the end. I don't think that it matters that much. I, I, I don't know. I can be convinced otherwise. <clears throat> but the important thing is, is that we desire to do the things that God's called us to do. I'm going to read a little tiny section out of this book right here. This guy's been dead for a long, long time. A.P. Gibbs. This is what he says about communion, about the Lord's Supper. He said, A lovely illustration of the desire of our Lord Jesus to be remembered. Why do we do this? Why do we break bread and have the fruit of the vine here? We do it for remembrance of Jesus, right? He says, uh, Desire of our Lord to be remembered is seen in the life of Joseph. Way back in Genesis. Genesis 37, several, several chapters, talks about uh, Joseph. The favored son who is perhaps, listen to this, who is perhaps, talking about Joseph, one of the most complete personal types of our Lord in the Old Testament Scriptures. After he had interpreted for good the butler, remember the butler's dream? Then you had the baker had a dream. And Joseph interpreted both of them. One of them was great news, but to the other... It was bad. It was really bad. So the butler, he interpreted his dream, and he said to the butler, he said, it, here it's, he, he's got, remember me when it, when it shall be well with thee, but I know it says, uh, think on me, or think of me. But it's the same thing. To say, think of me when it is well with you. That's what he tells the butler. Think of me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. Joseph was unjustly put in that prison. He was falsely accused. You know anybody else that was falsely accused? Yeah, our Lord and Savior was falsely accused. And he was put in the dungeon. He was put down in the grave. And when he went down into the grave, he 
minister to those people who were in paradise, Abraham's bosom. He had good news for some, and he had very bad news for the rich man who was crossed that great abyss. Wow, that story of Joseph is something. Now, did the butler remember him? No, he didn't remember him. It took two years. It took two years. When it shall be well with thee. Is it well with you? Or do you remember Jesus? When you, when you uh, realize that because of what he did for you, and it is now well with your soul, do you go out and remember him everywhere you go? Talk about him to those. You know, that, that, that uh, burden that was on uh, Nadia's heart about reaching our, just the people the, that are the closest to us. I mean, we're, we're looking at all these people out in the community and in the world and, and over in Africa, but what about the people right here with us? our very own family members that don't really know the Lord. They don't really know. We should be, because it is well with our soul, we should be able to talk about the song that's in our hymn books. Uh, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to that cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. You know, people who are not really, that can't really say it is well with my soul, they don't like communion. They don't like this. But if it's well with your soul, then you are, in, you are invited to take of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to walk around and take the bread and just hold it and then take the cup and just hold it and we'll all take it together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. We do this in remembrance of him. Let's eat the bread. Then he picked up the cup and said, this is my blood that is shed for you. And we drink it in remembrance of what he did for us and what his shed blood did to save our souls. Let's drink it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and to just share in remembering what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.